Gig Gab, the Working Musicians Podcast, episode 47, for Monday, January 11th, 2016. folks and welcome to gig gab the working musicians podcast where two musicians come together each week talk to you about all the things that we deal with and bring in other musicians to talk about stuff that we all like to go through here in durham new hampshire i'm dave hamilton and in las gatas california it's paul kent how you doing paul kent i'm great man you uh been busy guy though i mean have you yeah, I can't imagine you playing a lot of music. You were in Las Vegas with all of the uh, the gadget nerds last week, right? I was in Las Vegas with the with the gadget nerds last week, and no, I haven't been playing a lot of music. Actually, I've been playing um, more frequently on my own. Although I was away last week, so you know that that aside. But yeah, I um, and I don't have a lot of gigs on the schedule. You know, I'm a um, I, I'm not a I'm not a career sideman, but I'm one step up from that. I'm I'm a a band member that that tends to not. Uh, book a whole lot of gigs for the band, right? I, um, I've, I've been through it and it's not my, it's not the most enjoyable part of it. So I, I always make sure I'm in bands with people that, uh, that, that enjoy either enjoy or do the bookings of the gigs. And I, I pull my own weight in other ways. I always do the sound at the gigs and you know, all that other stuff. But, um, but actually today I, I started and booked a couple of gigs for Hamnesiac, which is the three fifths of fling acoustic trio. Right. Because I had to get some stuff on the schedule. And, uh, yeah. 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 So here's a question for you. Yeah. When you say that you uh, pull your weight in other ways, was that a conscious discussion with the band members where you actually said, don't count on me to do a lot of booking? And, and again, this is the band that Russ is in and Russ is like a machine, right? Russ is a machine. Russ also doesn't book a lot of gigs either, though. Uh, but yes, it's always a conscious discussion it, it, it's an explicit discussion is a is probably a better way to state it but yes yeah, absolutely expectation setting yeah 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 um I, you know it's not if listen if a gig comes my way or you know somebody starts asking me i'll happily take it take it through to the end it you know that's fine uh unless there's some reason to pass it off to one person that's handling all the bookings uh but but typically you know i can i can run it through its course but i just have a lot on my plate and I, you know, I spend a lot of my day chasing down business and, uh, and I enjoy not having to do that with music, huh. but that, you know, I mean, we've talked about this in, in various ways. That means in, at some points in time that I wind up playing music that wouldn't be the first type of music on my list to play. I, I don't want to say it's not my preference because I, I have yet to find a style of music that I don't enjoy playing. Even if I don't like listening to it, there's always something about playing that, that mm. makes it totally fine. But it, it does mean that at times I've been in bands, even for years, you know, that I've been in bands that are just the types of music that again, I wouldn't have gone out of my way. Like if it was my project that it wouldn't have been that. And, but you know, these are things like, like the blues band I was in, in Texas, I, I never would have started a blues band. A, I didn't really know a whole lot about the blues, you know, and, and B, you know, I probably would have picked something else at that point in my life, but playing in that band for five years, six years, I loved it, you know, and now yeah. it's like in my DNA, right? So it, it, it it's, it, it works out. <laughs> it's all good, but it does mean yeah. I have to, I have to be willing to keep my options open. Yeah. So I, I thought we'd start today. Um, obviously, big news in the music world is the passing of David Bowie, which is a tremendous loss. Only 69 years old and actually just releasing his last, his latest, his last, I suppose, album this week. Actually, someone's been posting the video that he made, the, the first promo video, and it's a very eerie. I mean, he, it's, it's quite clear he knew what was going, he was going through and where his fate lie. And... Um, it's very intense. So I, I don't know. Are you a big Bowie fan? Um, not a big Bowie fan. I, I am certainly a fan of his. There's, there's very little that I've heard from him that I don't like. 
Um, but I never, you know, it was never the, the, there was never a magic of Bowie for me. Like, there, you know, I mean, sure. some of, we have those artists where it's just like, it totally captures us. Lisa, my wife, totally gaga over Bowie. And, uh, and, and so she's been feeling this all day too. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm actually like you is like growing up, there was an appreciation for Bowie. Totally. But the stuff always kind of felt a little bit on the avant-garde side, you know, and it wasn't a lot of stuff that lends itself tremendously well to cover bands that you would play in growing up. Um, although you and I did take a crack at Suffragette City. That was kind of fun. We did Suffragette City. We did Rebel Rebel with Tom. I love, which I love. On vocals. Yeah, I hated playing that song. Um, I, <laughs> I, actually, I I didn't hate playing it. I hated every bit of rehearsing it. But playing it live for a crowd, it made sense, right? Having a singer that was engaging the crowd, you know, whipping them into a frenzy while the band was just driving. It's just a monotonous tune, musically speaking. I, uh, isn't Suffragette City the same thing? Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Rebel Rebel, it's just got that guitar lead that's just over and over again. But, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I, it's just terrible. You know, the poor guy has barely been gone 24 hours and here we are. Um, but that's who I am. You know, I'm happy to just call it like I see it. We play um, Ziggy. In Fling. And we've been doing that for the last year or two. And that song goes over really well. But yeah, I agree with you. It's it's very avant-garde stuff. And, you know, coming from a guy who's uh, spent a long time, uh, actually most of my musical life has been spent with prog rock being something that I that interests me at, you know, at various levels at various times. But um, I, I guess be, perhaps because I got into prog rock, the Bowie thing you know, prog rock serves that avant-garde thing in my head, right? You know, what? whereas, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, the Bowie stuff just didn't didn't resonate with me, but I, but I like it. it. It's, you know, <laughs> unlike, say, Lou Reed, where I really just don't like to listen to anything he ever recorded. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but, it, you know, again, it's just personal preference. I actually like listening to Bowie. We were listening to him at the house where we were playing Yahtzee tonight with uh, with our son. And it was like, oh, yeah, it's good stuff. He wrote good stuff. Yeah. yeah. He wrote a lot of good stuff. And when you kind of line it up there, it, it it's just he it wasn't normal stuff, though. I mean, no, I mean, you know, even Let's Dance or China Girl, maybe. Yeah. Would be about as commercial. You know, he kind of was a poster child in the 80s for MTV. Even that stuff is not quite. You know, not quite a straight line <laughs> no. in terms of pop songs. But uh, Simon, you know, when I do acoustic gigs, Simon has come out and done uh, acoustic versions of Space Oddity, and that goes over amazingly well. But actually, you're right. You know, he's only been gone, you know, 24 hours. But you line up his body of work, and there's really a, a remarkable magic that, oh. that you can draw a line, you know, between the songs. And even if it wasn't for me at the time, I'm certainly appreciating how people connected to that avant-garde and not avant-garde in terms of musically experimental. It, it wasn't like the, they were terrifically weird chord progressions. It was like a lot of strange sounds. There was always kind of an implication of art and fashion kind of imposed upon. upon. And the thing is that music and I always will remind myself this, that music means a lot to people. And if you want to judge great music, you know, that's if it. you can move, move somebody with something you've wrote, I think you've, and he definitely has. And oh so, yeah. Uh, no, listen. Yeah. He, he means influential. A, he's massively influential. And, and I think fair to say one of a kind, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, he, and in, in that auteur fashion, right. I mean, he, he was, it, it, he was his own person. It was obvious that everything he did stemmed either wholly or, you know, mostly from him. <laughs> he just poured it out, you know, kind of like Frank Zappa it, in, in that way. Right. Where it was just like, nope, I know what I'm doing and I don't care that it doesn't fit into your little box over there. This is the art that I am supposed to make. And, and yeah. Bowie I, I'm embodied that. And and when I say embodied, I mean like, you know, truly physically too. He just thought it out. Yeah. 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 No, it, it he was uh, one of a kind, one of a kind without a doubt. Visionary trendsetter. Um, 
you know, there's a lot of memes and stuff going on social media today, but this is the one that stuck with me. Somebody posted something from something called the book of success. And it says, when in doubt, listen to David Bowie in 1968, Bowie was a gay ginger bonk eyed snaggletooth freak walking around South London in a dress being shouted at by thugs. Four years later, he was still exactly that, but everyone else wanted to be like him too. If <laughs> Bowie can make, if David Bowie can make David Bowie cool, you can make you cool. Plus, unlike David Bowie, you get to listen to David Bowie for inspiration. So you're already one up on him. So you're already one ahead of David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, what, <sighs> what he accomplished. I haven't listened much to his, his uh, most recent album, which I guess just came out last week. Right. Um, but uh, it's, you know, I, I don't, um, there's a, there's an interesting thing that happens uh, when, artists pass away especially artists that meant something to to you know to 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 us growing up right i mean these these people are getting older and and so it makes sense that at some point they're going to pass away right we we lost chris squire recently i mean it, it happens fairly regularly now that that these artists that were you know mainstays and staples of our uh our youth and and just our lives really are 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 now gone but it there's an interesting thing about it and, and i mean this in a positive way we don't lose what they created that's true right so there's this but there's it's a weird thing it's like okay yeah david bowie passed away but did i it, and 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 i and i need to separate you know the human life and and it's 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 sad that he's gone especially that we lost him to cancer and and that sort of thing you need to get that, Paul. No, no. <laughs> okay. I forgot to unplug the phone. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, we, we've lost, we, we've lost a human life, but, but there's this body of work and it's like, did I just to separate a little bit, did I expect more from David Bowie? You know, did I expect that body of work to expand in a way that was, that was meaningful? And, and unfortunately I don't, and I don't know what his, I haven't listened to his new album, but in a general sense, most artists, certainly not all, but most, as they get to that point in their career, the stuff they put out isn't impacting the the public consciousness in the same way, right? It doesn't tend to be the stuff that's just going to last. Most of Bowie's work that you know that we think about is from you know thirty plus years ago, and it's just awesome, right? And it's it's there forever. I don't know if this album he released last week will be part of that, but if we judge him based on what we've seen from other artists and, and of course it's not fair to judge Bowie based on anybody else, but in a general sense, you know, it's like, yeah, the stuff that people release at that point in their career doesn't become part of that, you know, uh, foundation of rock and roll anymore. And, and so it's, well, an inter- it's an interesting thing, right? Chris Squire, when he passed away, it was like, well, it's sad that he's gone, but he hasn't released anything new it's like it, like the things that that mattered to me about Chris Squire didn't go away that day. I, I'll agree with you. We had a, a very interesting conversation a couple episodes ago about whether there's stuff from the nineties and you know, that is going to live on. Yeah. And the thing about Bowie passing is you can make a pretty good argument that that, that, that period of time, you know, let's say from 68 to 78, might be the the all time fertile ground for classic rock. I think you could you know say that there's a lot of you know you get the last part of the Beatles, you get some 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 good early Stones, uh, and uh, and then certainly a lot of other things. You know Zeppelin starts coming in. I'd say that that's not a bad. Yeah, if you had decade. to pick ten years, that's right. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good decade. You get you get Woodstock, you get the type of thing. Yep. And you know that is the music that kids today picking up a guitar still find incredibly valuable, motivating, inspiring to probably to a greater degree. So I'm kind of going back to what I was saying, because I was saying, yeah, I love the matchbox 20 stuff, but I don't think you can hold the matchbox 20 stuff. You know, even, even Nirvana's best hits or Pearl jams, you know, best music. I don't know if it's really in terms of a decade, if there's anything close to what that was. And, and, you know, Bowie released music in the seventies that had its own vibe, had its own feel had its own place in that canon of classic rock. 
And, uh, and you're right. We don't lose them, but I, you know, I don't fault him, you know, to say Bowie's album that's come out now, where is it? I mean, I don't know if I mentioned I'm a pretty big Bruce Springsteen fan. Sure. I think I've said that once or twice. Once. Um, Once. Now twice. You know, you know, Bruce is in uncharted territory. He's still releasing original music. A lot of people are like, ah, it's not born to run, but uh, you know, the world is much, 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 much different. Are, are the songs marketedly worse? Are they marketedly saying something else? I don't know. You know, I, I find joy in, in listening to the newer stuff. Um, but you're also not a 16 year old where music yeah. is changing your life is, is a big thing. Well, that's um, and neither. And Bruce isn't that 26 year old to you as the 16 year old. And I don't know what the delta between your ages is, but, you know, that, that there's that dynamic of here's this guy that's not that much older than me. That's creating this stuff. And, and that, you know, shared in the public consciousness creates that that legacy. Right. That, that absolutely. And, and so when it's when it's somebody who's 70 making stuff, it's a much harder even if they're writing exactly the same songs, it's just harder uh, to to make an impact. I, well, I think. It, yeah, I absolutely. And the world is different. Our attention span to the impact is different. Um, the what else is on the radio and, and kind of flooding our minds and our children's minds and our and every, is is very different. But you know, I, I give credit to all these guys. I mean, to be fair, the Stones haven't put out anything terribly vital in quite a long time. No, they hit the road, and you know, it's still fun to see them and all that stuff. And it's still very, it's still a very satisfying experience to see them. But in terms of vibrant art, not so much. Not so much. Bru- right. Bruce, Bruce, Dylan. And now, you know, you can actually say Bowie, you know, he, he put out a well thought out piece of of art that you get to hold up and you get to make your own decisions as to how you like it or what it is. But they're 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 trying to, you know, find their muse and and, uh, and entertain us in new ways and and challenges. And I, and I find that incredibly admirable. Oh. Dylan is is the most remarkable of I mean, Dylan, well into his 70s is, you know, and you could say some of the stuff that Dylan's put out in the last 20 years have been, you know, certainly better than the stuff you put out for the 30 years before that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's true. It's true. I, I, you know, um, I think you know this, but Dylan falls into that category, the same category as Lou Reed and Neil Young for me. Uh, uh-huh. They've, they, they, I, their influence on rock and roll is untouchable, right? There's, 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 I, I, I support it a hundred percent because it it's real. It exists. They've written some astounding songs that will live on forever but by golly, guys, find somebody else to sing them for you. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> That's my thing. Yeah, but, you know, it, it's I mean, again, it's just personal preference. It's like, yeah, whatever. but uh, it is. It is personal preference. And, and my wife says the exact same thing, especially about Dylan. Mm. Like, why? These songs are incredible. Why doesn't he just give them? But, you know, but he I has. Find- That's the thing is other people have taken them. And it's like, yeah, OK. Yep. Perfect. Great. But I actually find a lot of meaning in the original storyteller telling his story. You, I mean, you, I don't, I don't dig, I don't dig Getty Lee's voice, right? But, but Getty Lee is telling his story. Well, he's telling Neil Peart's story, but that's that's a different, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because he 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 doesn't write his own lyrics for the most part, right? You know, um, but yeah, that's the thing is right. We all have our thing, and 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 I get it that there's that whole roots rock thing that really doesn't resonate with me. Uh, I don't hate it. By any stretch, but it just has no impact, no emotional impact on me uh, unless the, the specific song I have a, a an attachment to because I played it or, you know, it has something meaningful. But but in general, that genre and I think that that's my problem. Not Well, you might see it as a problem. That's my my lack of of connection with Springsteen is it, you know, I mean, he's definitely in that roots rock kind of thing and and that's his you know he tells stories with his songs and uh and that just doesn't mean anything to me you know i like it i actually i like a lot of his tunes and and they're really fun to play but um you know (laughs) i don't i don't they're not the kind of thing i would put on but i but if somebody puts them on them i'm in you know it's all good all good you can't wait 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 wait. i can't leave this quite yet it's It's it is broadly in the genre of roots rock, like like much of Tom Petty. You don't like listening to much of Mellencamp. You don't like listening to. Um, yeah, Tom Petty and Mellencamp definitely fall into that into that realm. Uh, again, I you know they were I um, Petty actually. I used to for, for a long time. I mean, I hated 
Tom Petty with a passion. What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, obviously, obviously that has changed. I mean, you know, but again, it changed because I played the music and it and it and I found, you know, what it meant. Um, and, the, the, you know, the same is true with Mellencamp, actually. Uh, I don't know. He was Mellencamp was more of the MTV generation than any of the other Roots Rockers that we've mentioned. He he made some killer videos. And also, I think his best song is Paper and Fire. Which also had a great video, and maybe that's why I think it's its best song. But I actually think it's a well-written song, and it's it's interesting because it's got the violins and you know that 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 great hook. But um, but yeah, no, I hated Petty for a long time, and then and then you know I sort of tempered that back a little bit over time, and then Lisa dragged me to see him, and it was like, oh, this okay, now I get this. All right, I'm in. So what about what about Kenny Aronoff and? Um and uh, you know whatever drummer you saw with Petty and, and Max Weinberg, do you do you not appreciate what they're doing? Oh no! Wait a minute. Now Kenny Aronoff is a monster. That guy can do no wrong in my book. <laughs> uh, but and that's part of what I liked about Mellencamp, right? Is is was his playing? He you know he's just such a powerhouse. And um, Steve Ferroni with with uh, with Tom Petty in the is fantastic, and uh, and Max is outstanding. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're the, they are without question the right drummers for those bands. Mm. Perfect fit. Perfect right. fit. But no. just that, that, that style where the story is the song is not what moves you the most. It's not enough for me. Yeah. Got it. That, that's it. Yeah. Exa- that's exactly right. Yeah. I, I need, I need more, you know, and again, I, you know, I grew up on, on jazz. I grew up. Uh, yeah. But you grew up on, you grew up on the stones, man. I did. Yeah, but the Stones aren't telling stories. They're just selling sex and like, you know, great riffs. <laughs> the very few of the Stone songs tell a story. And when they do, I, it's tenuous at best. I, I get it. it. Just the format of the band is where all the Roots Rock, you know, I, I'd say yeah. that Stones are the ultimate Roots Rock band. If you want to say that, you know, two guitars carrying a rhythm in that way is. is uh, yeah, but they're a blues band. That's fair. You know what I mean? It's it, I get yeah. what you're saying though. The the lineup is not my my issue. It's 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 the songwriting. And and again, it's it's not that it's bad songwriting. I mean, I, listen, let's count up all the people that just one of any of those artists that we mentioned has impacted. Clearly, the songwriting is outstanding. Uh, it just you know it doesn't resonate with everybody. And that's the beauty of it. All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Move on. Nothing to see here. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> So we were going to talk about gear tonight. Are we still going to talk about gear, Paul? We can talk a little bit about gear and maybe what we can do is as a taste because the big Nam show is coming up in mm. a couple of weeks. So maybe, you know, a little bit about the best stuff that you've bought in the, in the last year. And, uh, you know, Nam is an interesting thing because if you haven't been to Nam, it's the North American music mergers trade show. It's the, it's one of the larger trade shows in the country. And, and it is Ostensibly, if you own some channel of selling musical gear, whether it's whether it's you know band instruments, you know traditional big band, you know school band, or guitars or anything like that, this is a huge convention center in Anaheim, California, that is full of manufacturers of gear, equipment, instruments, um, showing their wares off to people who might be able to sell it for them. That's ostensibly at its core what it is, mm. but really what it's become over the years is like, you know, you're running in musicians go there to check out the latest gear and, and uh, you know, it, it's a, it's supposed to be an industry thing, but it really, in reality, there's a lot more going on there. There are clinics about, about a lot of things. There's lots of concerts, there's lots of parties by the manufacturers. And so that happens in the end of January in Anaheim, California. And I think it still happens in the summertime in Nashville. Is that right? Oh, a smaller scale. Yeah. You know what? I think you're right. I know it yeah. used to. Yeah. 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 I, so what you're saying is doing this show, we definitely need to go to Nam every year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we'll be able to find some cool people to bring on the show and, and to get involved with what we're doing here with gig gab. I got to say, I, I sat down for lunch with a buddy of mine who works at loud technologies. Oh, yeah. They own Mackie and orange and, uh, and, uh, he loves what we're doing. I mean, he's like, you know, we're always trying to find interesting ways to just talk to musicians and there's not, you know, a lot of stuff misses the mark. A lot of people want to talk to the, to that, 
are competing for that high end touring musician, but that's a very small group of people sure. who are actually who are actually doing that. So, you know, that we're creating something that we can put out there for, you know, the weekend warrior, lack of a better term. Um, he loved it. So maybe we'll be able to get the Mackie guys involved. And in fact, Mackie is one of the, one of the cool pieces of gear that I got to use this year. I get to use that DL, uh, 1608, that 16 channel, um, digital board. And so it, I think a good place to start talking about, about gear is with digital boards. Cause I have two of them and they have changed our life. It's funny. You, you, you stole the, or not stole, but, but just called out the very first thing I had on my gear list. I have more, don't worry. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's that the, the digital mixers are, it, we've talked about them a few times on this show already, but yeah, you're right. It It's profoundly changing. It's, it's as profoundly changing it. Well, as something else we'll talk about, uh, but, but yes, massively. So I own the Presonus board um, and that's what I, we mix the house rockers with, but I also have this Mackie six. So the Presonus board is a 24 channel board. And then the Mackie board is um, a 16 channel board. And <clears throat> the Presonus board looks like a fairly traditional uh, mixing console. But the big thing with the consoles is that, you know, a lot of, just about all of your outboard gear, your limiters and, and a lot of your EQ all goes away. I mean, you're really almost walking into any gig with just your mixer and you're pretty much ready to go. And it is, it is, you know, certainly my sound guy was really getting tired of lugging all that crap, you know, for hundred dollar gigs or whatever it might be. Yeah. And this, you know, certainly renewed his, his faith in the world that, uh, that life could be a little bit easier. Um, you know, the quality of the preamps are great. Um, they, the digital technology has come such a long way. You, and the other thing is with all these digital boards, you can mix from anywhere in the room. You can take a phone or you can take a pad and, you know, you can walk away from the mixer and well, get to the center of the room yeah. and you can mix and you can give the instruments on stage, the musicians on stage, their ability to mix themselves very easily. That's it. Is yeah. It, you, you get to have, you know, up to, what, <clears throat> you know, 10, 11 different uh, control surfaces active simultaneously uh, adjusting different or, or if you can work together, well, the same things, <laughs> it, you know, but yeah, it makes a huge difference. I use the, that same Mackie 16 channel, the DL sixteen oh eight board, to mix, we use it for fling and and uh, and chafe. It's actually what I use for for pretty much all the gigs I do because it's so small uh, and easy to transport. But I use it to mix the jazz band too when I when I do the school jazz band, and it's fantastic because we don't have to set up a front of house location anymore. Right. You know, I put the mixer on stage, so there's no snake to be run. Y- you know, you just wire mics into it. Sometimes you run a, a short snake just to you know tidy things up on stage, but you're not going hundred feet back into the room just so that somebody can mix from an optimal location. And to your point, there is no one optimal location from which to mix a room. It's best if you can move around and the, and the best sound engineers will do that. Right. You know, either if, if possible moving around during the gig or even those guys that do arena shows right before the crowd, before the crowd comes in, actually before the band even comes in, they play the band show from the night before through the mains and walk around in each section and tune the room. Absolutely. You know, and that's how, and so you can now, instead of having to spend, you know, probably hundreds of thousands or perhaps millions on a system where you can do that now for a thousand bucks or less, you can do that too. It's, yes. it's, it's really amazing. One of my feet, so, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> well, so I'm just recapping here. So those yeah. two things, the mobility, and flexibility, you know, letting letting musicians mix themselves from their own phones or something like that. But you, the, your sound guy being able to walk around the room, that mobility and flexibility, and then the ability to kind of ditch so much outboard gear because it's built digitally right into the mixer. Those two things alone should make you run out and, and buy one of these things. I, I have a third thing because it really th- this made a difference for me as a as an audio guy. Right. You know, we had previously been using traditional analog mixers. Right. And sometimes they'd have effects built in. And, and you, like you said, you use a mix of inboard and outboard effects with the with those old mixers. And but the problem was you basically started every gig at zero and you had to build your gain structure, not only for the PA and the the room, 
But for each microphone and you're setting gain levels and, you know, you're finding the right EQ for each microphone, for each singer, for each instrument. And that meant, you know, that takes time. And so if you're going to have to, you know, maybe you've only got an hour to set up. And that also includes, hey, by the way, setting up all the instruments and, and that on stage. You don't have time to even think about using something like gating or compression on each of the instruments, right? There's just no way that you're going to be able to dial that in in a short amount of time. But when you're using a digital board, it's digital, which means it can save. Recall. Yeah, recall. You can save things. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll use a, you know, a compression setting for each vocalist that I've set in the studio, you know, or, or if we've had time at a gig, we can really tweak it. And as long as I know it's that same singer uh, in front of that same microphone singing the same way he or she always does it, I, you know, I can pull that back up and I'm golden still need to EQ for the room, but man, if I can start right there, it's huge. Yeah. So I think these are the, this is the biggest thing, you know, I was going to ask you because it doesn't seem like drum technology changes terribly much year to year. I mean, I mean, as a, as a classic old set of drums, you know, as good today for you to use or is technology made new drums indispensable? Um, and I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about digital drums, which is no, its own thing. That's its own thing. That's right. Um, no, the technology of making a drum, it has changed, uh, but not, necessarily for the better but but i wouldn't say for the worse either i mean there are new drums that sound that some of some of the best sounding drums i've ever heard are the new ones right new I mean, materials it, in the in the in the drum shell itself well just the 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 way that they're crafted you know we've learned a lot about bearing edges over the years which is the kind of the the angle at which you cut the 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 edge of the drum that the head sits on we've learned yeah. a lot about head technology but of course heads can be put on older drums you know there's a lot of things that we've learned and so new drums are tend to be built very well uh, or can be built very well we've had this body of knowledge it's not like there's some mystery to you know what gretch was doing in the 60s with drums that makes those just amazing they are some of them are some of them are crap because you know they're, they're like 50 years old, you, you know, so it, it, it all depends on the drum, it, but, but you don't need a new drum in order for it to be, you know, to sound great. You don't need an old drum. You got to find the right one. What I will say technology has helped with is everything beyond the drums, which is the hardware, the, the way the stands all fit together, the way things just stay where you put them, you know, think about this. If you're not a drummer, you probably haven't experienced this, at least not on a, a visceral level. But, you know, you're you're taking this thing and hanging it either from a rack or, or on a stand. And then you are going to pound at this thing. And, it, you know, it, with different levels of intensity. But it doesn't matter. Even if you're hitting a drum softly, there's this repetitive motion that is going to send vibrations in and causes nuts and wing nuts and bolts to loosen up over time. It sucks when those things fall apart mid gig or mid song. So a a lot of the technology that matters to me with drums is, again, beyond the drum itself. And it's the, you know, being able to set up like using a rack to set up the early racks sucked because they were just huge and heavy and sprawling. But racks now they can be smaller footprints than the stands that they replaced. But they also set up so much faster, partially because of the same thing as the mixer. You have a memory. Right. Yeah. You know, you, you, and again, if you're not a drummer, you haven't seen all, you haven't seen the, the nuts and bolts of this stuff, but you know, you set your drums up the way you want. And then you kind of set these little memory locks around you take everything off and you go set up in the next club, man. You just drop the stuff where it was and you're done. You know, there's no, I, I always say to guitar players or uh, people in general, but guitar players tend to, re- it tends to resonate with them. Imagine if you had to reset the action on your guitar for every gig, that's what it is for a drummer. You know, you're setting up the action. Are things in the same spot? No. Well, with a rack, you can get there. So, so yeah, I mean, technology has helped that in, in, what about, what about all the kind of stuff around the drum? That's like, uh, you know, cause our friend Dan East is always talking about this stuff, you know, the, like the, um, 
the rumble seats and the, you know, the stuff that help you feel the, you know, the, your, the kit in a different way or um, like these ports that you put in your, in your base junk uh, hole, yep. all this type of stuff. Are you a big gadget guy for that stuff? Well, I'm a gadget guy. So of course, yes. Um, but, and, and like any gadget, some of them uh, read better in the marketing material than they actually work in practice, but like the port on the kick drum that, which is called kick port uh, makes a huge difference. Uh, especially on smaller diameter kick drums. I have one in my 20 inch kick and it, it totally lowers the fundamental of the drum. It, it makes a huge difference. It's great stuff. More, more of a boom than a, than a pap. More of a thud. Yeah. Than a click. Yeah. 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 yeah the, fund, the note of the drum. It, it's, it's more of a thud than a click. Um, it makes, it makes a big difference and more presence on stage. I've had people, when I put the kick port in, they're like, wow, bass drum sounds huge. It's like, oh, good. You know, for the right gig, you know, miking a, a kick drum is, uh, you know, in a lot of our gigs is we actually much of our if we're going to have a problem on stage, it's going it, to it's it's often around the miking of the kick drum. And we try a lot of different things. You know, I think we've tried that. Sure. Um, um, the one that sits inside the kick drum. We have, uh, you know, a good Sennheiser that, that points at the hole and, and we try it at different angles. But a lot of times that's that's the trouble spot on stage for us. Uh-huh. Does this does this kick port do anything different for that? Well, you you know, but you need a, a different uh, thing and one that actually I use at every gig and have complete. It didn't put on my list because it's just part of my drum. And that's the point. When I had my my Eames kit built, I had uh, a, a, an internal miking system installed into it. So I have an AKG D112 which is, you know, one of the kind of the older industry standard kick drum mic. It's still used all over the place. It's that big egg shaped mic and it's got a, sure. yeah, it's got a, it's got a good kick drum sound. It works for, for that drum that it's in, but the, the mic is mounted inside the drum with an XLR jack on the side of the drum. So I plug a cable in and I'm done. The mic's in the same spot every time. And most importantly on smaller stages, there's no stand for people to trip all over or, you know, it just works. I think DW bought May, uh, which was the company that made these internal mounts for kick drums. Uh, but that's that's the solution, man. It's totally the best way to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. So um, I guess, you know, similarly, guitar stuff changes over time. Um, and they try to introduce these new technologies, these self-tuning guitars or these auto-tuning guitars or, you know, whatever it may be. But, you know, fundamentally, you know, seven string guitars, eight string guitars, fundamentally, you know, you're still seeing Telecasters and Les Pauls and Stratocasters being put out there because the fundamental, I think, of a guitar is is uh, is going to be a constant thing. That's what a guitar is. But uh, I guess, in, in you know, there's always new amp technologies, new modeling technologies. I'm not a big modeling guy. There's there seems to be like the boutique pedal industry has exploded and there's all sorts of pedals and pedal manufacturers. Um, you know, that's the type of stuff I would look for at NAMM. Um, but, you know, my guitars, something that feels good in my hand, you know, there's a sound. And again, it's the type of music I play, which I guess is really the common denominator here. The type of music I play, just a, a there's nothing new in a guitar that I think has been, certainly that has been exciting me for a while. Um, or that is going to change, make me run out and buy a new guitar because of a new feature. Yeah. Lighter guitars, you know, is not that important in different types of materials. Well, and they tend to sound like crap. A lot of those, like the carbon fiber guitars. I mean, again, I guess it depends on what kind of music you're playing, but um, you know, if you're trying to play music that should sound like it's coming out of a Les Paul on a carbon sure. fiber guitar, guess what, man, you know, <laughs> good luck. Well, you know, that whole area of modeling is a really interesting thing because um, I'm not a modeling guy. Modeling, you know, it always sounds too processed for me. Sure. There is a genre of music that comes out now that is all performed with modeling. And, you know, it, it is something you become used to and there's a different sound. But all this, um, you know, adapting other sound stuff, it just never, never works for my sound. I need to feel some air being pushed out of the amp yeah. and I need to, you know, feel the the very real feeling of when tubes are doing what tubes are supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, along those lines, I want to, I want to kind of change gears. We can come back to this, but you know, you mentioned moving air and, uh, and I stopped having, or I, I cut down on the Amer- the amount of air that was moving around me 15 years ago. 
when I moved to in-ear monitors. Ah, yeah. And and that when I, when I said before that the digital mixer was as profound as it was, you know, as when I moved to in-ears. Now, um, I use, in fact, the the in-ears that I currently use are are relatively old. They're the Ultimate Ears UE Seven Pros, which um, actually they're the UE Seven Pro Ambience, which are triple drivers per ear. And they have a little ambient port that lets in that I can control that lets in some outside sound uh, if I want, which is really handy if you're not able to get enough mics on stage to to get an an ambient sound. Uh, You're living in uh, you're living in in sound world tonight (laughs) over there. Speaking of speaking of sound. uh, But, you know, moving to that was a huge difference, but it was not an overnight transition for me. In fact, I, I still owe the guys in, in the band that at the time was called route 66, a, a, a debt of gratitude because they put up with me learning how to do this while we were actually trying to, you know, run a functioning rock band. Uh, it was, it was a very difficult transition. It, it probably took a good six months for me to, to really get comfortable with, um, with these things uh, because it's a weird thing, you know, it, it, but it makes a huge difference because you're able to sing and hear yourself um, and hear everybody else, which especially as a drummer, but really any instrumentalist on stage or even just a dedicated singer, it, you know, it's often hard to, to hear that. And especially as a drummer, you know, I've got a snare drum in front of me that when I hit it is about 120 decibels. So I'm wearing earplugs. Now I have a monitor wedge next to me. So we've got to turn that up over both the snare drum and the earplugs to get loud enough. And, 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 oh, by the way, not feed back into the microphone that's right next to my ears, you know. Uh, so moving to moving to in-ears made a big difference. Now, as a drummer, I was able to get away with some things that other instrumentalists and vocalists are not, specifically because I am, for the most part, strapped to one place on the stage, right? My drum stool. So I don't have to go with a wireless system, which cuts down on cost and complexity. So I, I typically these days for my in-ears, I actually run out of the headphone port of my, uh, of the DL 1608 of the Mackie mixer. I can put a limiter on it because again, digital effects and you always want a limiter and, uh, and it works, it works very well. Uh, I can set a mix out. I just solo the mix and that puts it in the headphone port and I can actually use stereo, which is sort of a a treat because I can pan things. But, um, but if I'm not doing that, I have a little box that I bought for about 50 bucks. You can still buy them. It's from a company called rolls. It's called the PM 50 headphone mixer. And I use this when I do gigs with, do you have one of these? Do you know what, you know what these are? I know what they are. Yeah. Yeah. I was just looking over it to see if that's the one I have. I have a headphone mixer, but it's not a roll. Okay. Yeah. Well, this, this little thing is great because it's got, uh, two inputs, one of them is just a quarter inch input that would be the line from the board. And obviously you could, you know, reverse that with an XLR jack if, you, if that's what you're getting from the soundboard. And so that's actually something I carry in my gig bag is this little box and any cable and adapter it would take to adapt either type of XLR male or female into this thing. Cause you never know what you're going to get. Um, so there's quarter inch for the monitor feed from the board and, and it, and there's a little level knob on it. So you can control that, which is great. And then it's got XLR in and out built as a microphone pass through. So I take my vocal mic and I plug it in and then I feed the, uh, the output of that to the soundboard and, and, and it's just a straight pass through. So nothing I do with the box changes what they're getting for the front of house. But what it means is I have another volume knob and I can add more me to the mix, which when somebody else is doing the sound and especially given that I'm used to being able to really tweak everything, it's nice to have a little knob where I think, oh, I need to hear more or less of my vocal. I have them yeah. give me very little, uh, you know, in the main mix, if possible. And then I can really control it and and get things where I want them. So and that's, it, you know, it's like a $50 thing. So it's really cheap to get started with in-ears. Uh, you don't need custom fit in-ears that cost 900 bucks or whatever, like I've got. You, you know, start with with some earbuds that are that seal well and, and, and are comfortable to wear. And uh, and a little fifty dollar headphone mixer if you can get away with it and try you know a couple of yeah. cables you're good to go yeah all right so I have a lot to say about about in ears so I've been at it for about six or seven years now. okay and uh, I've had so many ups and downs in the in the 
trying to get used to them. I've had periods of time where they've been great and I'm like, here we are. And then I'll have a, you know, a show where it's not quite right. And, and it's really frustrating. And then also, you know, I still, you have to commit to it as a big part of it. That's it. Um, That's a huge part of it because even in a show where they're doing pretty well, if I take an in ear out to feel the band, very hard to go back in. I'm kind of like, Oh, this is what's happening on stage. I, you know, I want to be in this. And so it's really hard. You really have to commit to a discipline that this is better for my hearing. This is, uh, you know, probably better for my playing, you know, because I can hear clearly it's a little bit less on the feel a little bit less to a lot less, depending on what you're doing. Yeah. I have the same in-ears as you. So I have the, the ones with the ports, yeah. which were certainly better than the ones I had before that, which had no ports, which sealed off everything. And then I was really detached. But, you know, as a front person in a band who needs to interact with an audience and, you know, a lot of things are being said to me on stage all the time. And I know, you know, you can add the little complexity and, you know, add mics on stage to pick that stuff up. But that's more mics. And that's, you know, that's, there's pro, pros and cons to that. There are. When they work. When they work, which is more and more, they are a, a game changing experience. If you want to talk about like being able to sing every night, yeah. when they don't work, they're really heartbreaking because they're, you're fighting them. And God forbid, if you, if, if it's one of the nights where you've not given yourself a backup and put a, a wedge in front of you as well. So this is all you have, you know, then you're, then you're really out to lunch. If, uh, if, uh, if they're not working for you, yeah, I'm not I, sure when mine don't work. I still don't know why. Cause we, you know, again, digital mixer saving presets. I think it has to do with my guys playing louder as the night goes on, totally. hitting things hard. Oh and yeah. Then I, mix, the mix well, changes. In years. Yeah. But you know, it's also, um, cause I've thought a lot about this too. There are some nights, most nights, in fact, I commit, right. There's no wedge around me. So if I want to hear my vocals, I have to have at least one of them in, you know, uh, but being a drummer versus being a guitar player, two very different things. And and especially when it comes to in-ears, I've heard that guitar players have the worst time adapting because you're so used to hearing that air coming out of your amp. Right. So there's there's that. And then there's everything else that the rest of us have to deal with, too. But being a drummer, you know, I'm in a fixed spot on the stage. And even if I don't need it for the front of house, it's trivial for me to set up an overhead mic over my drums that I can feed into my ears. And that again, because of just where I wind up or how I wind up on stage, it doesn't really matter where I am, but because I've got, you know, this big set of instruments around me, having that mic over the top solves a lot of that problem that you're talking about. But at the same time, there are some stages where it's like, perhaps even because of that overhead mic, you know, if, if the room sounds weird, you know, there's sometimes where even though that mic is is only, you know, two feet above my head or even a foot above my head, it's a weird sound up there. There's some, you know, odd little square wave because of the, how close the ceiling is or you know, what, who knows that it's just a disaster. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I know what you're talking about, but it you know, it, it's it's so much better in so many other ways, although for singing. I will say to anyone that that sings with in-ears, get used to singing with headphones on and hearing yourself in a studio. Just practice this because what's going to happen is you're going to sing very quietly. Yeah. Sound guys hate it. Yeah. You have to project as though you're singing with a monitor wedge. You know what that feels like, right? If you've done it before and if you haven't do it and then put the ears in, you know, halfway through a song and notice what happens and you know, you'll cut down your intensity by half, put it back up. You have to. And a lot of times for gigs, especially if we're doing our own sound, I'll leave my ears out for the first half of the first song. And just to a make sure everything on stage is okay, but also be to level set my own playing. So I don't overplay with the drums and get a feel for, okay, yep, this is where I should be. This is how it sounds good on stage. Now I'll put my ears in and just remember you know, to play at this level. And, uh, but it, you know, it, it, it takes, like you said, it takes dedication, but it, but it's awesome. It is a game changer for sure. Yeah. And the, and the, although the costs haven't come down on these in a couple of years, I mean, it's still like the 70 pros are probably about 500 bucks, right? Uh, eight fifty without the ambient port. So they haven't come down in not price a, much in the last five, five years. Not at all. Yeah. 
and you can spend more. You can get like, I think they have uh, the UE 12 pros or something, which are, you know, even more Four drivers or something. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, here's the thing. Um, they have the UE 18s, which are uh, 1350. I don't even know what the, what the difference is with those. I mean, how many drivers could there be in these things? Oh yeah. There's six drivers per ear. You think you can hear the difference? I certainly heard the difference between two and three drivers. There was a fuller mid range. It wasn't quite as muddy on the low end, but you know, it, it's all what you get used to. Listen, the number of drivers doesn't matter because the, the, like the future Sonics earphones, those are all dynamic drivers. The, when we're talking about multi-driver earphones, they're all balanced armatures. The, the future Sonics ones are single driver. It's a dynamic driver, which is literally a speaker in your ear. Uh, I love the way they sound. In fact, they're still my favorite earphones to listen to music with. I actually like the sort of quote unquote bad EQ of the, um, of the UE seven pros. They wouldn't be my favorite for listening to music. They're a little weird, but they've got a little growl kind of at the, you know, at the six K mark four K kind of four K to six K that really helps kind of accentuate vocals and, and bring like the click of, of hitting a drum out. And that's a helpful thing for me because then I, I, I hear what I'm doing and I won't overplay or I won't play too loud. And, and, that, and that's that's helpful. But it's not the mix you want in your ears when you're playing on stage is not the mix you want when you're like, you know, sitting on your couch, chilling right. out, listening to music. It's a, right, right, it's a right. whole different thing. Yeah. You um, tried out some some gear at CES with this this new technology that is like instant self-molding custom earphones. Is that going to make its way to these, these pro level uh, earphones anytime soon? Yeah, I, th- I think it will. Um, I, you know, it, it, I can't speak to the sound quality. They're going to send me some to, to check out. And I'll, I'll I think it was the Dessa Bulls brand, B U L L Z that, uh, that you're talking about there. Um, and, and it, 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 I, the only reason I can't speak to the sound quality is because I tested them in the middle of a big press event and my ears were shot anyway because the noise floor was like, you know, probably 90 decibels just at a, you know, without anybody. At least. At least. Right. It's just crazy. So it they sounded fine and they fit really well, which was handy. And it's like one hundred and twenty nine bucks or something. So there. But it, it was interesting what they're doing. It's a mix of a universal fit, like a flange that goes into your ear. And and so there's a flange that goes into your ear. And then the, the mold, it's a thermoplastic mold. So it's heat sensitive, right? So they put it in boiling water and then it, you know, in whatever, after a minute you take it out, you put it into your ear and, uh, and it molds to kind of your outer ear to create that seal and that fit Mm. that locks in. But it was very comfortable again for the, you know, four minutes that I listened. (laughs) Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I can totally see that, you know, cause most musicians don't want or even need to spend a thousand bucks on, on uh, just their earphones. You know, sure. it's an expensive uh, thing to it do. Is. And you got to see if you can get used to it first is my recommendation. Right. Yeah. I do it for a hundred bucks. And then if you're totally in, then you can buy the crazy stuff that we have. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. All right, man. Well, we covered a lot of ground today. I, you know, everybody go out and listen to some Bowie. If they, if you get nothing else from this, from this podcast tonight, go out and listen to some Bowie and, and think about what greatness sounds like. Yeah, for sure. It's um, yeah, there's, it's crazy. It's always crazy. I don't know. We're going to, we're going to put a couple Bowie tunes into our, into our set, like the, all the guys in the band were interested in. So we're going to put three or four and play, rotate them through over the next couple months and see what, see what sticks. Yeah. It's fun. It is all fun. Thanks for listening, folks. Feedback at giggabpodcast.com is where you can reach us. You can also find us on Facebook. Gig Gab Podcast is what we are there, too. And we'd love to hear from you. Any ideas you have, your favorite gear, send it in. We'll talk about it because this isn't this is the first official gear gab episode, but it's definitely not the last. Have fun, have fun at Nam, Paul. Thanks, man. Oh, I guess we'll talk before you go to Nam, though, right? Oh, yeah, we got a couple. We got a couple. One more. One more. That's right. That's right. One more. Okay. Have a good one. Thank you. See you next time. Bye, Dave. Bye, Paul.